John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness does not understand it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world and through the world and through and though the world was made by him the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him to those who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace... We have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. May God bless that reading to us this morning. I should have mentioned earlier, uh, we normally would have our youth Bible study, our youth church program that starts now, Um, unfortunately, as you can tell by the fact that I'm playing the piano, we're a little bit short-staffed today, Um, there's a bit of sickness going around, Um, so there will be no youth church today, but that's okay, because if you're a young person, you can listen to me. Oh, why are you laughing? Is it that hard? Oh, come on. All right, I'm going to begin with a story. Story about this man. You can't really see him very well. There we go. His name is Ho Khan. He's a Vietnamese farmer. And it was in the 1990s when Khan was searching in the jungle near his farm for agar wood. Now, agar wood's a kind of highly sought-after timber. It's it's actually timber that's sort of been infected with some sort of algae infection-y thing. But it makes it really dark and it makes it... Uh, quite aromatic. So they use it for incense, they also use it for wood carvings. It's very valuable. And so Khan was in the jungle searching for this agar wood to try and make some money from it. And while he was searching in the jungle, he stumbled across this little opening in the ground. It was a very dense jungle, but he could see a bit of a hole between the rocks. And from in that hole, he could hear the sound of rushing water. But He had other things on his mind, and so he moved on. He quickly forgot about the hole and the little underground stream that he could hear. That was in the 1990s, but in 2009, so many, many years later, there was a couple of British cavers 
who were exploring a nearby cave system and they mentioned to Khan that they believed there may be some caves that hadn't yet been discovered in the area. They sort of knew there was one cave up here and there was a river flowing through and then there was another cave but they thought maybe there's something in between. And Khan remembered this hole that he had discovered all those years earlier and so he decided to show these British cavers what he had found. This is what they found. What Hokan had thought was small and insignificant turned out to be the largest underground cave in the world. It is huge, this thing. In fact, it's so big you could fit a whole block of New York City skyscrapers inside it and there would still be space. Like, it's enormous. It's, got, it's five kilometres long, one, one single cavern. One, five kilometres long, 200 metres high, 150 metres wide. It's got stalagmites that are 70 metres tall. They're the kind of ones that come up from the ground. 70 metres. And yet until 2009, no one even knew it existed. Well, here's my point. Here's where I'm going with this. This morning, we begin a new sermon series in the Gospel of John. And John's whole reason for writing this account of Jesus' life is to make sure that we don't miss his significance. In fact, if you, if you turn ahead in your Bibles to John chapter 20, John actually tells us the whole reason that he wrote his book. He's very clear. He's got an agenda. He's not hiding that. Because in verse 30... Actually, I've got it up here on the screen. There it is. In verse 30 of John chapter 20, he writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, John is writing to people who know a bit about Jesus. He's writing sometime between the year 50 and 80 AD, there's all sorts of guesses exactly. It's a, a time that, like today, lots of people had heard of Jesus of Nazareth. Almost everyone kind of knew a story. Almost everyone had heard some rumours. And yet, just like Ho Khan, the Vietnamese farmer, did, it would be so easy for all those people that knew a bit of Jesus to simply walk on by thinking there's nothing to see here. It would be so easy to think that Jesus is insignificant. And so John writes this gospel and he says, don't do that. Don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is a nobody. Don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is irrelevant to your life. Don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus isn't worth your time. John says to you, come and see who Jesus truly is. He invites us to kind of climb down the hole beneath the surface and explore Because when we go, we'll see it's not just something small and insignificant. It's grand. It's impressive. It's amazing. See who Jesus really is. Because it's when you see who Jesus really is that you can find the life that he offers. Friends, that's why John wrote this gospel. And it's why we're reading it now. It's why we're going to spend the next nine weeks Uh, beginning the gospel, we're only going to get through the first four chapters this term, but we'll come back to it over subsequent years. We want to know this life that Jesus offers. 
Because it is impossible to overstate the significance of Jesus. There is no way that we can ever say that Jesus is more important than he truly is. We, we can't overstate it. He is so significant and we need to see his significance. So we're going to do that over these next nine weeks. It's my hope that we'll be captivated and amazed and awestruck, brought to our knees by the greatness of Jesus. And so how about I pray and ask that God would actually help us do that. Let's pray. Father God, as we come before your word now, we read things that for many of us are familiar, things we've heard many times. But Lord, do not let the familiarity hide the significance of what we read. Lord, as we read these words about Jesus, help us to understand just how huge they are, how life-changing they are, and Lord, we ask indeed that you would change our lives because of what we read. And we ask this because it's good for us and because it brings you glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, we're only going to consider the first five verses of John's Gospel. Um, They're actually printed there on your outline. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along. We're going to consider uh, two origin stories that John tells us. They're very short stories. They're two verses each. These two origin stories. There's the story of how Jesus came to be and the story of how everything came to be. If you like, it's the Christmas story, how Jesus came to be, and the creation story, how everything came to be. They're the points on the back of your outline. And then at the end, we're going to turn to consider our story, the implications of what John writes here. So we're going to begin with the other Christmas story. Because John's gospel is not like Matthew, Mark and Luke. John tells the same story, but he tells it differently. Matthew, Mark and Luke are actually quite similar to each other. There's differences, but John is is quite different. He tells the same story, he tells it differently. And so we see right throughout, there's going to be things that John tells us about that the others don't. There's going to be things that the others tell us about that John doesn't. Oh, I can't remember if I said that right. doesn't matter. But we see it really clearly at the very beginning. Here's where we see the differences between John and the other Gospels. Because where does the Jesus story begin? If you go to Mark's Gospel, he begins where Jesus is grown up and he's starting his public ministry. That's where, John, that's where Mark kind of kicks off. Jesus is already grown up. If you go to Luke, he takes us further back. He takes us to where Jesus is born. He, he tells us, you know, the, the Christmas story as you know it, with Mary and Joseph and shepherds and angels and all that. If you go to Matthew, he takes us further back again. Because he begins by showing us how Jesus is the descendant of King David and the descendant of Abraham. He kind of takes us even further back. But where does John start? He goes further still. Because the way that John sees it, to really know Jesus to really comprehend the magnitude of who he is, to truly believe in him and find the life that is in his name, you need to go right back and see how Jesus always was. You see it there in verse 1. Take a look. There we go, it's on the screen too. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John wants us to know that before there was an empty tomb, before there was a cross, 
before the Mount of Olives, before the temple, before the manger, before David, before Abraham, before Adam, even before time itself, Jesus was. In the beginning was the Word. And not only was Jesus there when time began, John also says he was with God. But not only that, John also says that Jesus was and is God. Now, how anyone can be with God and be God at the same time, God knows. This is the mystery of the Trinity. And we'll get, this is at least part of the Bible's teaching about the Trinity. And yes, in case you're wondering, John does also believe in the Holy Spirit. He's not leaving him out here. Father, Son and Spirit, all there in the beginning. But the thing that you've got to notice in John 1 is that John doesn't call Jesus the, uh, the Son. He doesn't call him Jesus. Instead, he calls him the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Now, why is, Jesus calling, why is John calling Jesus the Word? Now, if I give to you the phrase, Word of God, what comes to mind? You instantly think of the Bible, right? If you've been in church, we read the Word of God, the Bible. And the Bible is God's Word, is God's Word written, but God's words are not like our words. Have a think about it. What can you do with words? You can describe things, can't you? You can describe all sorts of things with words. You can look out the window today and say, it's windy today, or it's sunny for a little bit today. You can describe your love for someone. You can use all sorts of adjectives, husbands, to describe your love for your wife. Like, I love you very much and lots and other words. You can describe what you did on the weekend. You can even describe what you would like to eat at a restaurant. You can describe with your words. But have you ever noticed how powerless your words are? Because your words don't really do anything, do they? And you'll know this if you're a parent. And if you've said to your kids this morning, (laughs) put your shoes on. It's then that you know that your words are ultimately powerless because you said, put your shoes on. And they may have even said, yes, mum. And then they didn't do it, did they? They didn't do it the first time or the second time or the third time. But you said it. You said it with your words. Why didn't your words result in them putting their shoes on? You said it lots of times. You said it in your most authoritative voice. You said it with threats. And yet it still didn't happen because your words are ultimately powerless. They don't do anything. You know that if you've been to the barber and asked for a little bit off the top and that's not what you get, is it? Your words are powerless. But God's word, God's word is not like that. Because you see, God doesn't describe reality. He prescribes reality. When God says it is sunny today, it becomes sunny today. That's how God's word works. It it does things. We see that right in the very beginning of the Bible. The first sentence, not the first sentence, the first page. God said, let there be light. And light appeared. That's how God's word works. It is powerful. It it does things. And throughout the Bible, you see that this is the way that God does anything. It's 
by his word. When he wants to create, he speaks. When he wants to communicate, he does it by his word. That's why we read again and again in the, in the prophets, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Amos. He creates by his word. He communicates by his word. He even redeems, he saves by his word. In Psalm 107, the psalmist can say, he sent out his word and healed them. See, your words don't do that. Your words don't do anything, but God's word is active. It does stuff. Anyway, here's the point. John says that Jesus is this word. Jesus is God's power at work in the world. But there's kind of even more to it than that. Because that word translated as word in John chapter 1 is a Greek word. It's the Greek word logos. And it means more than just words that are spoken or words that are written. Logos is where we get our word for logic. Logos is kind of the whole idea of a thought, of meaning. And so both Jews and Greeks in John's day saw logos as the way that you talked about why the world is the way it is. You see, when you read the word logos, it's explaining the whole reality, explaining the universe, explaining why the world is the way it is. We, we kind of use science to do that. In fact, you know, even today, scientists all over the world are still trying to explain the universe. They're trying to explain how the universe is the way it is. I was actually just reading really recently how we have these two theories that explain the universe in science. One is uh, general relativity and one is uh, quantum mechanics. And they do a really good job at explaining the really big things in the universe, like galaxies and stars and planets, and they do a really good job at explaining the really, really small things in the universe, like subatomic particles. But scientists are now starting to see that they actually contradict each other. They, they don't explain everything perfectly. And so Stephen Hawking, he says... The eventual goal of science is to provide one single theory that describes the whole universe. One logos that describes everything. But even if physicists can do that, and they may well do that, even if they can come up with a single unifying theory that explains everything from stars and galaxies to subatomic particles, there is one question that science can't answer because it's a question that science was never designed to answer. And that question is, why? Science answers the question of how things are. You say, how is it that the earth revolves around the sun? And science can explain that. But science can't answer the question of why. John tells us the answer to the question of why. John tells us what the logos of the universe, the thing that explains everything in the universe, the thing that explains the purpose of everything in the universe, and it's a person. The logos of the universe, the unifying principle, the one that can explain everything, the reason he can explain why everything is the way it is, is because in verse 3, John tells us 
in no uncertain terms that Jesus, the divine Logos, is the one who made everything the way it is. And this is where we come to the other creation story. We've had the other Christmas story, the explanation of how Jesus came to be. Now we get the other creation story. But unlike the Genesis account, which spends two chapters describing in great detail all the order that God created on each day, well, John cuts straight to the point with his creation story. Jesus did it. That's basically his story. Have a look. He says, through him... Oh, I don't have it up there. Sorry. (laughs) Let's get rid of Mr. Hawking. Through him, all things were made. That's John's creation account. Through Jesus, all things were made. It's pretty straightforward, but in case you missed it, John clarifies for us. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And so friends, here we see, not only did Jesus exist before everything, John also wants us to see that Jesus is the reason for everything. He is the unifying principle. He is the answer to the question of why. He is the thing that gives all reality meaning and purpose. And if this is getting a little bit too abstract for you, I'm going to bring it right down to to show you how this impacts our story. Because we need to see that if this is who Jesus is, it changes who we are too. And there's two really big implications that I want to share with you this morning. The first one is the confidence that Jesus brings. Now, over the last few decades, I'm sure you've noticed that Christian belief has sort of been pushed further and further and further to the fringes of broader society. I'm sure you've noticed, particularly if you've been a Christian for a long time, That 50 years ago, if you told someone that you went to church, they said, of course you did. Everyone goes to church. 20 years ago, if you told someone that you went to church, well, that that response of acceptance sort of changed to maybe a bit of a smirk, maybe a bit of laughter. And 10 years ago, that laughter became suspicion. And in recent times, we're seeing that reaction trending toward hostility, aren't we? It's not across the board. There are still people that are very in favour of Christian belief, even though they don't hold it. But over broader society, you are seeing a trend toward hostility. When you tell someone you're a Christian, you don't always get met with acceptance anymore. It's because Christian beliefs are being pushed towards the fringe, aren't they? You look at the election campaign at the moment and you can, it's really easy to see that things that Christians have held as, as fundamental truths of life in God's world, they're being questioned, they're being disputed, they're even being rejected by mainstream society. And friends, the consequence of this is that if you're a Christian today, it is really, really easy to feel like your beliefs don't belong. It is really easy to feel that Jesus has no place in this culture. But do you see what John chapter 1 shows us? John chapter 1 shows us that the whole world is Jesus' world. It shows us that belief in him is central to explaining everything that is in the universe. That Jesus is not on the fringe, he is right at the heart of all existence. 
The universe is here because of Him. You are here because of Him. Life is here, in verse 4, because of Him. It says, in Him was life. That life is light for all mankind, but it hasn't been recognised, has it? It light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not either understood it or overcome it. You might have different translations in your Bible. The word is like the idea of master. <laughs> the, the, the darkness has not mastered the light. And you go, what does that mean? It hasn't defeated it or it hasn't comprehended it. It could mean either. But, but the thing is, the life that Jesus shows us, the life that he created us to live still shines and the darkness will not overcome it. And so while our world may not understand his light, while our world may not like his light, the light will prevail. The darkness will not overcome it. And so brothers and sisters, your beliefs do not need to be on the fringe of this society. You do not need to doubt that the the faith that you have in Jesus is both true and and good. We can have confidence because Jesus is the one who created all things, who rules all things, and who is the reason for all things. So that's the first implication. We can have confidence because Jesus is the divine word who was and is. The second implication for us this morning is the centrality that Jesus demands. The first one is the confidence that Jesus gives us. The second one, the centrality that Jesus demands. Because here's the logic here. If Jesus is who John says he is, if Jesus is the divine word, the one who created all things, the one who gives meaning and purpose and reason to all things, if everything in this universe can be explained with reference to Jesus... Well, that means you can too. Is in your life has to be wholly, completely explained and directed toward Jesus. The whole reason you exist, the whole reason that anything exists, is because of Jesus. He was in the beginning. It was out of him that creation came to be. Everything that is here was created by him and through him and for him. And if that is true, it is completely, completely inconsistent to consider Jesus as anything less than the most important thing in your life. And so what I want to ask you is, if you're a Christian, is this the view of Jesus that you have? Is Jesus the one with all authority in heaven and on earth? Is Jesus the eternal cause of all life? Is Jesus, does Jesus occupy that position of significance and importance in your life? Because it would be just completely insane, completely inconsistent to read John 1, agree with it, nod and go, yeah, Jesus is the word of God the one who is eternal, the one who made all things, the one who explains all things, and then just live our lives as if Jesus occupies this little few hours on Sunday morning. There's a problem there. That's, That's completely inconsistent, isn't it? 
We can't read this passage and walk away putting Jesus in a little box. And so, friends, it's my hope this morning that if, if you read John 1, if you, are, if you have your eyes open to see the hugeness of who Jesus is, if you believe that he is this divine logos, well, then the only thing that you can do is give your whole life to him, to recognize that he is the most important. He is the priority. He is the central. He is the deciding factor in everything that we do. Friends, that is who Jesus is. And so we're going to continue over the next weeks having John lift our eyes to comprehend the magnitude of Jesus. But I'm going to pray and then we're going to respond by singing, oh, glory be to Christ, because what else can you sing to the one who is and who was the supreme Christ. Let's pray. Father God, it is easy for us to look on Jesus and think of him as being small, being insignificant, being mostly irrelevant. It's it's easy for us even to consider him to be important and yet not of ultimate importance and so lord we ask that you would help us see who jesus truly is open our eyes to see what john saw to see that jesus was not just a man who lived and died that he is god eternal invisible that he is god who created all things who sustains all things and who created all things for his purposes. Lord, show us just what it means to live in a world that belongs to Jesus. Lord, help us to give Jesus the supremacy in our life. And we pray this in, in his name. Amen.